You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Want to make a statement? The boys told me I did a couple of murders. Anything in it? I think you better let me have it. Bring in your book. when my brain cells playing hide-and-seek with those dizzy flashes down the street, I'd have never got messed up with a stolen jade necklace. I've never hired a detective before. What are the rates? As much as the traffic will bear. When can you start? I've already started. Well, this looked like something to rub your palms about. But my client's lovely stepdaughter had other ideas. What did she ask you to do? She wanted me to kiss her and find a jade necklace. Whatever she was willing to pay you, I'll up it. Just stay away from it. Forget the whole thing. It sounded screwy, but it's a funny thing. I always follow through on a sale, even if it pays dividends in a broken skull. I didn't see what hit me. I didn't have to. The first thing I knew, I found myself heaped on a bed like a bag of bones ready for the scrap heap. My throat was dry. My hands felt like a bunch of bananas. I couldn't stand on my pen. Okay, I said to myself, you're a tough guy. Let's see you get out of this straitjacket. Help! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Eric Cohen. Hi there. Also with me is Mr. Terry Frost. How you doing? Welcome to the first in a trio of episodes. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three variations on Philip Marlowe. Um, actually, kind of a lot more than that. We'll be kicking off with this first proper adaptation of Raymond Chandler's Private Dick with Murder My Sweet. Based on Farewell My Lovely, this was the second book written by Chandler, but it was the first one adapted to the silver screen. It had initially been adapted as part of the Falcon series starring George Sanders, and it was adapted again two years later by John Paxton for Edward Dimitrik's 1942 film. Murder My Sweet stars Dick Powell as you've never seen him before. It was a reinvention of Powell's persona that rubbed some critics the wrong way, but gave the actor a new lease on his career. And of course, I should say, we're going to be getting into spoilers. For this film, we might even ruin some other Chandler films on this episode, so just be warned. So, Eric, when was the first time you saw Murder, My Sweet, and what did you think? First time I saw it was actually fairly recently, about a couple of years ago. I think it was on Turner Classic Movies. I was looking forward to it because I heard a lot about it. I'm a fan of Raymond Chandler and I'm a fan of like hard-boiled fiction and all that stuff. And I heard, you know, a lot of critics and even Chandler himself thought that Powell's interpretation of Marlowe was the one that most fit the book. And so, yeah, and I remember seeing it and liking it a lot. And 
uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, I rewatched it this afternoon. And I like it even more than I did the first time I liked it. I noticed certain things in there I hadn't noticed before. How about you, Terry? Uh, it was fairly recently. I did pick up the Blu-ray of it. And I'd seen other adaptations before, Lady in the Lake and, and things like that. But I wanted to see the Dick Powell and I heard so much about it. I liked Dick Powell from a whole bunch of other movies, including The Bad and the Beautiful, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I love this. Uh, I like the fact that, well, we'll get into that a little bit later. I like the way that it's structured. I like the uh, way each actor is perfectly cast. And it's just a lot of fun and enjoyable as well as kind of being of its time and being a certain genre. It's an immensely enjoyable film. I saw this one on VHS. I don't remember how many years ago, and I can't remember what my introduction to Marlowe was. I'm pretty sure it was The Big Sleep was my first version of Marlowe that I saw. And then I think I saw this fairly soon thereafter. And I was not that familiar with Dick Powell as an actor. Um, I had seen maybe one of the musicals that he was in, but I wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't just this song and dance man, which was where he was at in his career at this point. He was really trying to reinvent himself as a different type of actor. So I love even looking at the posters and seeing the new Dick Powell and just like all of these things trying to say like, you have not seen Dick Powell do this before. Like I said in the intro, this did give his career a new lease on life, and this helped him move into other roles such as this, as well as into the directing chair, as well as doing a lot of television work that he did. And he would play detectives and play tough guys a lot more because other than that, he was more of a comic actor, song and dance man. And that comic stuff goes so well with this, and he is able to bring that wry sense of humor so well to this role. And I think that plays perfectly with this. I know some people had a problem back then and maybe even today as far as his acting in this, but I had no issues with it. And I find him to be kind of delightful in this. And to your point, Terry, so many of the actors are pitch perfect, especially Mike Mazursky as Moose Malloy. He is probably one of my favorite things about this movie. He's fantastic in it. There are a couple of little bits of business that he does. There's a thing where Marlo has a gun on his desk and Moose walks in and he brushes the gun aside like it's a piece of paper. It's just not relevant to him. He's implacable. And there's another bit where a bartender puts his hand on Moose's shoulder and Moose just brushes him off like he's a leaf that's fallen off a tree or something. There's some nice little bits of kind of body acting there that gives us a lot to work with as far as understanding the character of Moose Malloy. So we're fairly early into what some people call the film noir cycle, you know, the, the early days of film noir when this was this stylistic set of conventions was really being employed. We have this whole idea of uh, European expressionism being injected into U.S. filmmaking, especially when you have a wave of immigrants coming over from Europe who are on the move from World War II, on the on the run from Hitler, a lot of, of folks. You know, we've talked before on this show as far as some of the conventions of film noir. We've talked about key lighting, talked about the dark shadows. We've also talked about you know, flashback structure, and this movie has 
all of that in spades. We're immediately put into these positions where we don't know exactly what is happening. We are with Marlowe. He is blinded. We don't know why he's been blinded, wearing these bandages over his eyes. So having a blinded private eye is already kind of an interesting twist on it. Even the first couple shots of the movie, we don't know exactly what we're looking at. Eventually, we kind of figure out, oh, we're in this interrogation room. So we're looking at like a light on the ceiling and, and on this desk and everything. And then those great, great shadows that are happening in this. And we don't know how many people are necessarily in the room. We are kind of lost like Marlowe is. And there's a lot of times where the audience, we are just being kind of thrown out of it to really keep us on our toes. There's a lot of times where they will use kind of disconcerting cuts just to make sure that we are kind of paying attention. I think his use of expressionism is really, really interesting because I want to clarify for our audience, not that I want to be that smarty pants on your show, but <laughs> Edward Dimitrik was actually Canadian, born in Canada, and he was raised in like California. I, for the longest time, thought he was like Eastern European or something like that. I have no idea. I mean, I guess he was a fan of German expressionism films, right? Because of what he employs, uh, the techniques he employs in uh, Murder My Sweet are, are very evocative of that. There were like some hard-boiled thrillers that had come out prior to Murder My Sweet. I mean, we already discussed uh, um, The Maltese Falcon, which was considered one of the first films to sort of fall into that, you know, genre of, of film noir and all that stuff. But I can't recall, unless you guys can uh, jog my memory, any film that employed this much, much expressionism before in an American sort of thriller like Murder My Sweet. I would probably go to Citizen Kane. There's a lot of this that reminds me of Citizen Kane, the deep focus photography, the low angles, the sets that you're on that you think shouldn't have ceilings. Then when you see a piece of the ceiling, it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then especially when he goes into the, um, the, the upper echelons, palatial mansion, I was completely reminded of Xanadu, especially with the use of the echoes on the voices to imply how much space is inside of that house. I want to second what you said about Dick Powell. We weren't around when this film initially was theatrically released, right? And I can't imagine how jarring it must have been for audiences of the time. Imagine, you know, if they had internet culture back then and they announced like Dick Powell was going to play Philip Marlowe. It must have been similar to when they first announced Michael Keaton as Batman. I know I've seen him in like some of the Busby Berkeley musicals he, he was in, but I barely remember them. I do remember him being in an Abbott and Costello movie. So I didn't have that baggage associated with him when I, when I saw this for the first time. But I think he's great in it. He's really solid. It's inspired casting because you do see him sort of as an actor delving into his bag of comedic tricks, but in very subtle ways. There's that moment that there's a moment that sticks out to me where he's like hanging out in the mansion waiting to like meet Grail Sr., right? And when he's called to come in, he does this light tap dance on the floor. He's playing hopscotch with the, uh, the, the floor is like a checkerboard, right? Like little moments like that, which, which sort of come out of nowhere. They're very left field, but they're not like, Oh, gee, I got to remind the audience. I used to be a funny guy kind of moments. He, he does these little subtle kind of left field things or great character moments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Marla's the smart ass. We all know that from the books and having Dick Powell in there, he's got a beautiful everyman look about him. He doesn't look like a kind of matinee movie star. Uh, he's not particularly tall. 
one of the things I've always liked about his acting is he's always been an intelligent actor. There's always been that kind of mind working behind the things. When other people are talking in this movie, you can see Marlowe thinking about what they're saying and kind of sorting out the bullshit from the the truth in his mind. And Dick Powell gives us that in his acting. And I, I love that kind of complexity that's subtly there, but is very much a part of his portrayal of Marlowe. The one thing I really picked up on when I was watching this last night was the idea of the animal imagery that's going on. You know, I've already mentioned Moose Malloy and having a character named after a moose is one thing. But then even in that first little speech, when Marlowe is bringing us into his world, he makes so many bird references. Like they talk about him going back to his office and he's like, oh, I'm a home and pigeon and my bank account was trying to crawl under a duck. And then he decides to go grouse hunting. And it's just like, wow, one after another, after another, as he's setting us up into his world. And it's nice that Marlowe is a detective who's down on his luck. He is not taking cases just for the fun of it. He is really, you know, he's kind of like that Sam Spade character that we talked about with Maltese Falcon, where he's constantly trying to get money, though it doesn't seem to be his sole driving force. He does have this kind of code of honor a little bit, though I think he would uh, demur if you told him that he had one, but he definitely seems to have one. But he wants, he, he needs money. He will take money for these things and he definitely needs a case. So when Moose shows up in that amazing shot of Marlowe looking out at his city at Los Angeles and then that reflection of Mazursky in the window. Oh, it is so nice. And when it, it the light is flashing from the neon outside and we get this kind of the appearance, he's like an apparition. And that's the thing about Moose Malloy that I really appreciate is that you never know when he's going to show up. And when he shows up, it is always completely silent. Even though Mazursky as, as Malloy is this huge lumber presence, he never makes a noise when he comes on screen. Just to get back to what you're saying about Marlowe being a down on his luck private eye, in the later novels he actually marries a rich woman and it chafes against him big time. He wants to get a case even though he's set up really nicely in a nice house in a place called Poodle Springs with his wife. Marlowe, the character, is really not comfortable with being comfortable. And I, I like that about it. I like the fact that he's unashamedly, even though he probably would admit it, working class. And I think that Dick Powell's look and Dick Powell's manner gives us a lot of that there. I was going to make a comment about the dialogue in the script. I think it's it's very, very clever. I don't know who the screenwriter is for this. There's little visual things. Uh, they like to juxtapose dialogue with what we're seeing visually, like when he's being driven up to the house. He makes some comment about how it's just an okay house. You, you, you would, but you would need a compass to, to get to the front door or something like that, right? And he keeps, the, the voiceover is, is, you know, it's modest, but you see this huge freaking mansion, right? And, and I, I, I love how they do that juxtapositioning throughout the movie. It's, it's very amusing, very clever. Getting back to Moose Malloy, it's interesting. We're going to talk about the other adaptations later, but it's interesting how they choose to have Malloy go to Marlowe. Uh, whereas in the novel, Marlowe more or less stumbles upon Malloy. It opens with Malloy wreaking havoc in the club and all that stuff. And it's been a while since I've read the novel, but I remember this much. There's a lot of interesting stuff there at the beginning about race and racial dynamics in L.A. at that time. 
Mike, when we did the episode on um, L.A. Confidential, rereadings parts of Farewell My Lovely in order to, I couldn't read, I didn't have time to read the entire novel. I just read certain aspects of it just to sort of like try to refresh my memory from the last time I read it. But it just, it, it, it hit me how sophisticated Raymond Chandler was in depicting sort of the, the social politics of L.A. at that time, that it's something that could have been written today. Well, so much of the book, and it doesn't necessarily come through in this adaptation for film. Hayes Code and all that stuff probably would yeah. because there's a lot about police corruption in the novel as well. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say was just the corruption of it. And when a, a African-American is killed at the beginning of the book, Marlowe is like, oh, well, it was, quote unquote, just another shine killing. So he knows that it is going to get just completely swept away. It goes to the guy who is the like the second detective in here, Nolte, it goes to him and in the book he's kind of this loser detective that is just hanging on by a thread and so they give him all of the shit cases, whether they get solved or not, who cares? And then the other uh, murder that happens fairly early in this is a man that's coded as homosexual in the film and is more coded as homosexual in the book and you know, it's just as I think Kevin Spacey says in LA Confidential, another LA homicide, you know, so it's another disenfranchised person that's been murdered who really gives a, a crap about any of that stuff. It isn't until you get to the wealthy people that that's when maybe the police are going to do their job. And it depends on, is it this cop here in LA who seems to give a damn, or is it the Bay City police who are completely in the pocket of this master gangster who doesn't even make an appearance in this version of Farewell My Lovely. He is completely written out of it. So which I think works for this. And you know, I talked about that whole idea of being disconcerted as far as some of the cuts that happen in this movie, some of the angles, those kind of things. And it works well with the source material because the source material barely holds itself together because it was actually culled together by three different short stories that Chandler had written or novelettes and him trying to put those three things together. So one woman from one story becomes the, uh, the same woman in another story. And so that's why we have like, you know, so much of, of detective novels as Cherche la femme, find the woman. And the woman in this was one person in one story, another woman in another story, so that she changes her name and changes her appearance to mold those two stories together, I think is very clever. I think he does a great job of it, but there's still some, some rough edges here and there that again, keep us on our toes and give us that feeling of discomfort, which I think is perfect for a movie like this. Yeah, I think Chandler himself even said he didn't really care about the complexity of the plots. If everything didn't tie together, he was more interested in character development and and his descriptions of the backdrop, so to speak. Most of his novels and stories were set in L.A., but not all of them. But he was really fascinated by getting that down, like the seedier sides and the less seedy sides and all that stuff. And that's what he's most interested in. The dialogue, the kind of smart, wise-cracking dialogue, was came straight from Chandler as well. There's some, some direct quotes in this movie from Chandler that really make it work for us. 
Yes, so much of that voiceover is directly from Chandler, which I think is what makes it crackle so well. By the way, it was John Baxter that did the adaptation of that, and he and Demetric and a lot of the folks from this movie would work on a few other films, and they kind of like just picked up and moved right onto the film Crossfire, from what I understand, after this one. So there was this continuity of, of some of the folks behind the scenes, which is great. The idea of this dialogue, the idea of having us in Chandler's head and giving us the voiceover, you know, ostensibly he is telling this story to the police and you would think that they would get kind of frustrated after a while and just say cut to the chase. But <laughs> instead we as the audience are uh, gifted with this whole storytelling process and getting those great quips from Marlowe as he's describing this. And, you know, again, it ties back into the, the original source novel, which all of that was always told from a first person point of view. And like that, we're having this voiceover in this movie and we only know as much as Marlowe knows. Like there's no scenes that take place without Marlowe in them. As far as I know, we are always with him. So we have that limited POV and there are certain things that he will keep from us. So like there's a whole thing with a business card that I was really paying attention to the business card in this uh, movie because in the book, when he hands the business card to this drunk woman, she puts her glass on it. And then when he gets the card back from a dead body, there's a watermark on the card. So he knows exactly how this card moved. doesn't happen in the movie, but that's okay because it doesn't really need to. We just need to kind of hold on and make some assumptions that some of these things are related. Again, to your point, Eric, it really doesn't matter how we get there. It's the fun of the journey because when we talk next week about the big sleep, we'll talk about that darn chauffeur that nobody knows how he died or who killed him, but it, he's, he needs to be dead in order to make the plot move along. I'm really fa fascinated by how Raymond Chandler, although he was American born, he was raised in Britain. And at some point he returns to the United States. And I don't know if it has something to do with, you know, the foreign impression of of a place like L.A., if, if this is what what aided and and how vivid his descriptions are, but but there, I think there's something to that where it couldn't have been anybody else but Raymond Chandler who wrote things like Farewell, My Lovely, and you know The Big Sleep and stuff like that, and in such a poetic and descriptive way. And I love how uh, Demetrix sort of finds a sort of like visual equivalent to that kind of description and the way he approaches it in an expressionistic way. One of the nice things about any detective novel is usually the author, I'm thinking of an Australian private eye novelist called Peter Corris, who was writing about Sydney, and Sydney was one of his main characters in his Cliff Hardy novels. He actually grew up and spent most of his early life in Melbourne, so he came with an outsider's viewpoint to the city, and that outsider's viewpoint let him display the city as one of his characters and I think very much that's what Chandler did in this as well and just getting back to the voiceover I can't think of another film noir where the voiceover is so integral to the plot the fact that Marlowe is being interrogated by the cops makes that voiceover seamless for us we totally understand it, it doesn't stand out the way it does with the voiceover they put into Blade Runner or anything like that, it's integral to the plot and to the way the story unfolds and I think that's really lovely I, I love the, how perfect it is we travel with Marlowe and Moose. Uh, Marlowe ends up picking up the case. And 
I also really enjoy that Moose, I don't know if he's punch drunk or dumb or what's going on with him, but he's got this whole thing where he will repeat himself. And then there's even a point in the very beginning of the movie here where he doesn't even recognize Marlo. He's like, you know, what, what's it to you? And Marlo's like, I'm the guy who came with you. Like, Hey, I, you know, you know who I am. And then finally it's like this look of recognition goes off in his eyes and it's like, okay. Yeah. So Moose Malloy, having Moose Malloy around is like having this, this Chekhov's gun that's introduced because he doesn't know his own strength. He doesn't know anything about anything. He just seems to be this this creature with a purpose. He needs to find Velma Valento, and that's his only thing. And he will do anything that it takes to find Velma Valento. And so he puts Marlo onto that. And I love too Mazursky wearing these very dapper clothes, and it's this whole thing of like he went away for a while, he socks the money away before he went to prison. When he comes back, he's got the money there, so he really does it up and you know is all gussied up in these fancy duds. And then how he is very freewheeling with his money at the beginning of the movie and then as it goes along he ends up at the, the end he ends up tapped out so he goes to throw more money at Marlo and he pretty much ends up with his his pockets coming out with just nothing but lint at the end and Marlo ends up having to give him some money and be like yeah go out and buy yourself a cup of coffee so it's it's nice that we have this through line of Malloy on the outs and the way that again he shows up at different points of the story where you again don't necessarily suspect him to to show up like we'll talk about the uh the character of of Jules Anthor and how when Moose shows up there, he actually acts as a different character in the book. That's it's not Moose doing what this character does um, in the movie. So it's a nice substitution that they have because they have a uh, really super strong Native American guy in the book, and then they replace him with super strong Moose Malloy. And the way that now Anthor is manipulating him, like he knows where Velma is, but he's not telling you. And again, it's kind of he's almost like a Gollum, you know, he's been set out on this, this one thing, you know, resurrected, put this idea in his head, and then he will do anything in order to fulfill his task. It's such an interesting character to have set off this, this like particular mystery story. Usually the, the, the traditional or rather cliche ways of starting off, say, a nor of any sort usually involves a dame, a femme fatale or something like that. But this is, this is like, this is about as antithetical to that. As, po- as as you could possibly come up with, it's this is guy who probably is an ex fighter. It's, it's, we ne- we're never told what his background is, but he's definitely punch drunk. Yeah, he has a, a cauliflower ear to the bit where you first see him in a car. I don't know whether it's Mazurki's ear or whether they put on a prosthesis, but he's got a cauliflower ear, and so you make the assumption that he has been clocked a number of times. Though anybody who can punch out. Moose Malloy has got to be pretty impressive themselves. But yeah, you get that idea that he doesn't have all of the marbles that he was born with. And that makes him much more dangerous and implacable in a sense. When he throws that guy in the bar into the tables and chairs, it's it's quite an impressive move. He's fast when he needs to be. And if you cross him, he doesn't think he just acts. And that makes him a really powerful force in this movie. And I love him just taking the bottles after he's done trashing the entire bar, just grabbing those bottles and like, okay, let's go and walking out with those and then using that bottle 
to to move into the next scene where Marlo, <laughs> I love his thing where he's like, oh, it took me five minutes to find out who owned the club uh, or who used to own the club by looking in the phone book. Uh, Moose Malloy never would have thought about that. So he ends up taking that bottle and to the widow of the former owner of this place and plies her. And that's again where we get this great voiceover where he describes this widow as uh, having a, she was a charming middle-aged lady with a face like a bucket of mud. This performance is a little unhinged, but I think it works very well for it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an art to act drunk on screen. And when you do it poorly, it really shows. But I think she does a pretty good job. And especially this whole, like her trying to outwit the sly private eye and thinking that she knows how to uh, keep information from him, but he's always one step ahead of her. Yeah, that's an actor called Esther Howard, and she's brilliant. She worked with uh, John Sturgis in a lot of movies. She was up, uh, sorry, Preston Sturgis. Um, and she was part of his kind of stock company of characters. And, uh, one of the nice things is she's, she acts drunk during that scene. But as Milo finds out, she was acting drunk. The character was acting drunk. So you've got an actor playing a character who is acting drunk, which gives it that extra complexity and i think that um howard does a great job of it that she's yeah we all we've all met women who are down on their heels and um maybe have a problem with drinking and she carries that really nicely and even though it's not a particularly big role i really like the way she plays it we're given a witty elevator man in this movie and i was surprised that he didn't have a little bit more to do he shows up a couple times in this and again he shows up to help confound us a little bit was as marlo is going up in the elevator the elevator man tells him that he has a client waiting for him in his office so marlo assumes that it's malloy we assume that it's malloy you know he's asking questions is he drunk all these kind of things and then the uh, elevator man's like, oh, no, he's not drunk and he smells real nice. And so then when we find out that it's not Malloy, it's another one of those nice turns. And so we're surprised as Marlo is surprised uh, finding Leslie Marriott, who, again, like I said, he's kind of coded as a homosexual, which I don't know if that necessarily works or not, because it seems like he was kind of a gigolo to this other character. But whatever, maybe he just swings both ways and this is his thing. I think he's definitely coded as a homosexual. When they introduced that character, I definitely thought about Joel Cairo for some reason. Well, yeah, the the smells real nice. I was thinking of uh, Joel Cairo's card smelling like, uh, what is it, begonias or whatever. Gardenias or something, wasn't Gardenias, it? Gardenias, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I picked him up as gay, definitely. He could be one of those guys, that are, particularly in, in the era, there were a lot of rich women who wanted an escort. And so in order to hide the homosexuality, a lot of guys were professional escorts. Cesar Romero did it for a long time. He escorted any number of beautiful women around. And wait a second. Of, wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that Cesar Romero was gay? You do not know. Wow, this is a shocking <laughs> revelation for me. Okay. All if you right. listen to Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, you'll know a lot about Cesar Romero. This whole thing that Marriott is there for Marlowe to escort him to a deal, it just really, it, it stinks to high heaven. You know, no amount of, of cologne or perfume is going to hide just how bad this sounds as far as, oh yeah, I just picked your name out of the book and I need you to come with me because these jewels were robbed and blah, 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 blah. It so reminds me, and I know we'll talk up a lot more about the big Lebowski next week when we talk about the big sleep, but it so reminded 
reminded me of, you know, Bunny and the toe and the bag of dirty laundry and all this kind of stuff. It just this whole idea of let, let's go to this location where these people have told us to go. And I always love Marlo's line about um, how the crooks might not appreciate Marriott being twins. I thought that was a nice thing. But yeah, we have this whole secretive rendezvous where they go up to a secluded area and Marriott ends up being killed and then Marlo ends up being sapped. And this is the first of three times that our hero is knocked unconscious. So it's one of these great things where, you know, I was talking about, um, you know, being disconcerted in this movie, even though we have Marlo as our narrator, there are so many times where he dips out of the story because he's been knocked unconscious or he's been pumped full of drugs, making him, even though he's our, our narrator and he should be reliable, he's somewhat unreliable because we don't know what state his brain is in. If he's not plying himself with alcohol, he's addled by being knocked unconscious or being, you know, shot full of whatever they're shooting him full of in this uh, psych board later on. So it's kind of a nice way, again, to keep us on our toes. Yeah, that can't be good for you, getting knocked out that much. Uh, <laughs> acquired brain injuries, <laughs> not something a private eye really needs to have. Yeah. <laughs> And I like that they even call it out at one point when he, because after he finds Marriott is dead and he, first Marlo is, is surprised by a, uh, a deer in the woods, another uh, more animal imagery. After he wakes up, he finds Marriott dead and he also is surprised by this woman who's out uh, in the dark forest. And then he walks to the police station in the book. He actually gets a ride from this woman and gets taken to the police station while he's there at the police station. I can't remember if it's him or the cop. I think the the cop says it. the more often you go over it, the sillier it sounds because yeah, this was a ludicrous situation that he's in that Marriott had put him in. Yeah. in the book, she, that character, they expand her character for the movie. Right, because in the book she kind of she shows up at the beginning, takes Marlowe back to his office. Uh, she, uh, she's she's not the same character she is in the movie, and then she kind of disappears in the book after that, if I recall. Whereas in the movie, she's actually the daughter of Grail, who was married to. Well, we're, we're going to get to that in a moment, but the ravishing blonde that that Marlowe seems to be attracted to initially at first. I also like this whole idea of the cop just making a mistake and dropping Jules Anthor's name. And then the way that Marlo hooks onto that and kind of pushes and does this whole thing. He's like, Oh no, that was a bad guess. And just is able to get information that he shouldn't necessarily have in order to move the plot along. Granted, uh, in the book, he actually gets Jules Anthor's name from these quote unquote Russian cigarettes that are marijuana cigarettes that are inside of uh, Leslie Marriott's jacket pocket and they're stuffed into his his business card Anthor's business card is stuffed into the mouthpiece of these Russian cigarettes which kind of makes it funny because they they're talking about the smell of the marijuana and all this stuff and earlier on in the movie I thought it might come back in the, in the movie because the very first time they hand Marlo a cigarette what's he do he smells it before he throws it into his mouth I guess he was just check, checking the tobacco rather than checking to see if it was a joint or anything but yeah that was 
again, the decadence of Leslie Marriott coming out here as far as uh, him having these marijuana cigarettes. And there's also, and I'll talk a lot about Orientalism, it's inside of this case that has a Oriental design on it. And so that was removed from this movie. So there isn't the threat of Orientalism in here, but it's definitely in the book. And in the Falcon movie as well, there's a lot more of it in the uh, previous version of this story. I was curious if we're supposed to take the Grail name. It's, you know, I'm always all about names and this whole idea of the Grail. I'm, you know, and they describe uh, Marlowe as being this knight errant. And I'm always like, was he supposed to be finding the Holy Grail or am I just reading way too much into it? I don't think you are, because wasn't one of the original names when Chandler, one of the original stories that Chandler incorporated into his novels, his lead character's name was Mallory instead of Marlowe. And and I think we all know, I mean, we, anyone who's studied, even like barely studied Chandler knows that he wanted to present Marlowe sort of this white knight character. Yeah, flawed white knight, um, kind of in the same way that Paladin is in Have Gun, Will Travel. I mean, there's a kind of theme going through American literature and American TV and movies of the kind of flawed knight. And he's definitely a part of that. And speaking back to the Orientalism, then just the name Jules Amthor has a kind of Egyptian feel about it. And uh, so there's that kind of, you know, not being a kind of white Anglo-Saxon American in some of these characters. So you get that kind of exoticism, which makes them in the code of the movie untrustworthy. And Amthor is definitely that. Uh, I love Otto Kruger in this movie. He's malevolent without being over the top about it. So we have our elevator man now the next day when Marlowe is recovered, telling us that business is getting better and prettier. And that's where we're reintroduced to Anne Grail, the woman that surprised him after um, he found uh, Marriott's body. But she's dolled up now like a reporter. So, again, our intrepid detective isn't necessarily the best at detecting um, not to say that he's a bad person or anything but he takes forever to recognize the woman that he saw just briefly after he'd been conked on the head granted is now this woman that's playing this reporter and then also is the woman that will we'll see again as being the daughter of the man whose jade necklace was stolen. And that was the whole thing that put us on this path with Marriott. So again, we've kind of moved now into the second story as far as this goes. Like Velma, even though she's there, the whole idea of like Moose needs to find Velma. Now we're into this whole jewel heist kind of thing. So it's, we have this very tentative uh, flow into this thing. And now we get to move into that palatial house that we were talking about earlier, um, which I said, you know, kind of has shades of Xanadu. And that's where we're introduced to Claire Trevor as um, uh, Helen Grail, um, who, spoilers, I'm glad I said spoilers before, is actually Velma Valento. Claire Trevor, the way she's introduced is fantastic. Just she's this dame with those amazing gams. I'm trying my best to use the patois. <laughs> and just they focus on her legs so much. She is so much younger than her husband. And again, you know, I was thinking a lot about the Big Lebowski as far as, you know, the, the Tara Reed character in the Big Lebowski compared to older Lebowski. And then even, you know, the love interest is actually the stepdaughter of 
the Helen Grill character, uh, as much as you can say Maude, Le- Maude Lebowski is the love interest. But here we have Anne Grail, the one we were talking about, is the stepdaughter of Helen Grail. And then this sets up this whole great rivalry between the daughter and the mother. And there probably already was a rivalry going on there because the father married so much younger. But we really get this when Marlowe is introduced so that when Helen is going now after Marlowe, it's making Anne more and more jealous because she is falling for him at the same time. And Helen is just doing it in order to get what she wants. And to think of Helen, and I'm, I'm trying my best to make sure I'm keeping these two women separate, thinking of Helen as being this kind of ultimate femme fatale because everyone that she is involved with is pretty much dead by the end of the movie other than Marlo because everyone else, every other man, I should say, that was in her life has problems uh, by the end of the film. Yeah, she reminded me a bit of a, about another character in another film noir, a movie called Decoy. Yeah, and the femme fatale in Decoy is – a monster in a lot of ways. Everybody was just a means for her to get her money. Jean Gilly played the character in, in um, Decoy, and she's very much like that. We don't, in, particularly in the 1940s, they didn't expect women to be you know, ambitious and forthright and murderous to get what they want. The character's name was Margot Shelby in Decoy, by the way. In this one, um, Mrs. Grail is definitely that. She's full on, she's determined, but she sits in the background and lets the men mess each other up to a certain extent before she comes in and, and does what she needs to do to get what she wants. Her introduction reminded me a lot of uh, the introduction of Barbara Stanwyck's character, Phyllis Dietrichson. Am I getting it? Dietrichson in uh, Double Demony. Especially when they, they focus not just on her legs, but her ankles. And I was like expecting to see like an ankle necklace, just like in Double Indemnity. It's not there, but I, I, I thought there was some striking similarities between that bit of trivia. Apparently, prior to Farewell My Lovely, uh, Dick Powell was so desperate to change his, his reputation as an actor and his image that he apparently really, 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 uh, like put himself out there to get the, the Walter Neff role in Double Indemnity. And, and lost it to Fred McMurray. Didn't Chandler work on the script for that as well? He did. What's really in- ironic about that is that Billy Wilder was interested in casting against type because up to that time, Fred McMurray was considered a light comedian. And that was like his first really dramatic role. And so he wanted to cast somebody that people would be lured into this false sense of security. That's something, you know, you know, this kind of character that's going to be sort of lead protagonist is going to wind up doing some pretty bad things. And Dick Powell would have been perfect for that. That's interesting because I had no history with Powell, but I had plenty of history with McMurray watching my three sons growing up. So when I first saw Double Indemnity, that was a shocker to me. Like, oh, my God, he's he's playing such a dick in this. Also, those really bad Disney movies that Fred McMurray did, like Flubber and, and things like that. <laughs> I, I got I got forced to watch those when I was a kid going to Saturday matinees, and I never liked one of them. And Fred McMurray, I didn't like – I didn't watch My Three Sons for that reason because Fred McMurray was in all those shitty Disney movies. And uh, I never liked him in those, and I never liked him in My Three Sons, but I liked him in Double Indemnity because he's such a sap. And to further connect the, uh, you know, further connecting the thread, so to speak, uh, later on, Edward Dimitrik made uh, The K-Mutiny, which also co-starred Fred McMurray, and he was kind of a dick in that, too. 
Yeah, and you think that he's doing so much righteous stuff, and then when Jose Ferrer comes in and tells him off, it's just like, whoa, you guys feel like you're about two feet tall now, don't you? That was one of the first times in movies watching the Kane Mutiny where I saw that reverse where the characters weren't what I thought they were, even though they were presented as that. And then somebody comes in from left field and knocks my perception of them in a hat, and it just spun me out when I first saw it. So I guess there is Orientalism in this, and I was forgetting about that because at the the club that they go to, there's this woman who's dressed up, and it's almost like this kind of Thai outfit that she's wearing. And I thought for sure we would get like our requisite song and dance number because those were kind of part and parcel of a lot of movies at this time. It's like if you're going to see a movie, you need to see, you know, maybe even a comedy bit and a uh, song and a dance and all this kind of stuff. But luckily, we we avoid that a little bit. We'll get that next week when we talk about The Big Sleep, but we don't get that necessarily in here. Especially with Dick Powell, right? Especially right, with Dick exactly. Powell in your movie. <laughs> I wonder if he expressly stipulated that. Like, please, please, no song and dance numbers. I don't get to sing The Girl in the Police Gazette in this one. We have this whole interesting thing where there's where Anne Grail shows up at this. Like, he comes there with Helen Grail. Helen is like, oh, I'm going to go powder my nose. And then he goes to the table. Anne is there. And Anne pretty much tells him, oh, she's already ditched you. You know, just you're a sap already. And then he ends up catching sight of Moose, goes over and talks to Moose for a second, comes back, and Anne's also ditched him. So he gets dumped by both Grail women at this place. And then Moose ends up taking him to Jules Anthor. So that's how we're then introduced to that rather than Marlowe trying to find Anthor, even though he met Anthor a little bit earlier. He just happened to show up at the Grail house at that exact time. Thank goodness for happenstance. And now we get the sinister Anthor and this whole introduction of this character proper where he's this, and I love that he comes out and says, I'm a quack. You know, I am a quack. I'm this psychic no one respects me, and he uses this ability as a psychic in order to ply secrets out of women, and especially you know rich women. And whether he's also a gigolo, we're not really sure. Is he sleeping with his customers? I wouldn't necessarily put it past him. Seems like something that you would do. But he's definitely getting information and then able to set up different machinations. And that's kind of, you know, Marlowe lays it out like, oh, you got information out of this woman, and then you set up this whole jewelry thing, and yada, yada, yada. He's barking up the wrong tree, but he knows enough to put Anthor on edge, and then Anthor uses Moose Malloy to be his muscle in this scene. Moose Malloy and his very tough-looking chauffeur, who I wouldn't necessarily want to meet that chauffeur in a dark alley. Yeah, he's got a smashed up face, that guy. Uh, you know, kind of squat, squarish face, bad look on his face. You don't want to go near him. And that leads up to that great line, the uh, black pool opened up at my feet line. I dived in. And next thing I remember, I was going somewhere, and he doesn't know where, and he ends up in this whole nightmare sequence. And we talked about nightmare sequences way back when we were talking about Stranger on the Third Floor, and this one is right there as far as the use, again, of the expressionism, this whole idea of surreality. And I love this whole thing of him running through this whole series of doors, but then the way that the doctor behind him just walks through the doors and then the larger than life images of Anthor and all this. I mean, this whole sequence is 
so beautiful and just a little like mini movie unto itself. And it, it really is nice. And it seems like, you know, this, this kind of stuff, it, it's right there. Like we talked about vertigo and Scotty's dream sequence and vertigo. And so much of this reminds me of that too, as far as the spinning and these things to again, keep us on edge. And then we're also put on edge once he wakes up and we have these spider webs, um, for lack of a better term, over the screen or smoke, I suppose. And him uh, talking about them and him seeing them and us seeing them at the same time and the way that they'll come back as he starts to get a little bit foggier as well. So again, our character it doesn't have his faculties and he's trying desperately to get them. There's some lovely acting by Dick Powell in that bit where he's terrified having those nightmares. Powell plays that beautifully. It's really on point. And it's something you don't see much in 1940s movies of this type, which is the hero and the protagonist and the knight really showing a vulnerable side. You never see that in these films. And in this one, you do. You see that fear. You see that total terror. And you see him totally out of control. He's been a smart-ass private eye up to this point. But he's a man being driven mad by drugs at this point, And it works. And Dick Powell plays it beautifully. Yeah, he does this thing too, which is a really cool, like, actor thing where he's, he does this thing with his throat. It's, he's not quite coughing. It's like this hacking kind of thing going on. And he maintains it for a couple of scenes after that. And you get the sense that this guy is, is sick. It's not like, yeah, and dehydrated. It's not like movie, Hollywood movie actor plays beaten up kind of thing. It's like, you really believe this guy is like on something and dehydrated and, just completely discombobulated. And that he's had the life nearly choked out of him by Moose Malloy. It's one of the best sequences in film noir for me, up to, say, something like Vertigo and all of the fancy stuff Hitchcock did with that. It really does amp up what's at stake for Marlowe in the movie. There are a whole bunch of people wanting this jade necklace and all the rest of it. But for Marlowe, it's like an existential threat right at that point. And they make it threatening. And that's how we're introduced to this character of Dr. Sonderborg and that exchange between Marlowe and Sonderborg once Marlowe wakes up, I think is fantastic. And the way that he will start to fade out and he just seems so desperate to keep his himself awake and aware and the control that he's trying to exert over Sonderborg is great. There's this whole thing in the book where Sonderborg's got a buzzer uh, at the corner of his desk and Marlowe's got a blackjack and he will like try to uh, sap the guy's arm just to keep his hand away from that. And yeah, it's great. That sequence in the book is fantastic as well. I mean, and they do such a good job. Demetric does such a great job of bringing that sequence to life. You know, it's, it's tough to, to show someone that's been pumped full of who knows what, but they do a great job of, of bringing that nightmare from the page onto the screen in, in a brilliant way. And again, Chandler does a great job in the book using words to describe all of this stuff, and especially those moments afterwards. And after he makes his way out of the office from Sanderborg, in the book, he goes down and he actually finds Moose Malloy has been hid out in this place, in the sanatorium. It's basically, it's a, a refugee place, a safe house for criminals and sees Malloy there. And that's the first time he sees Malloy again in the novel from way early on. So having him show up 
before that and choking Marlowe and being this, this patsy for, um, Anthor is, is a very nice way of doing it. And I think that works well in the movie. Um, and then having him also just show up out of nowhere outside of Sonderborg sanatorium works well too. And then I love it when he helps Marlowe out, puts him in a cab, has the cab driver drive him, even though the cab driver's already got another fare. And then when Marlowe realizes, oh, my God, Moose's brain is working now, it puts this whole fear into him, which is a really great moment. And then he goes over to Anne's house, Marlowe does, and then he has this moment there. And in, it's interesting because we're kind of starting to move away from the book a little bit more, but this whole idea of him going to Anne's after that is uh, in the book, but he more, more or less just is the sanitarium very lucky for him is about two blocks away from her house. So he just manages to walk there. So coincidence, coincidence, right? And the interesting thing too is um, Marlo's still vulnerable at this point. He needs a sanctuary and he needs a place where he knows people aren't going to find him. And the fact that he goes to Anne's house underlines the attraction between them, which I, I think is a kind of a nice thing. And the fact that she's at first reluctant, but eventually makes him eggs and, and coffee and all of that kind of stuff with all the important things in life kind of works. It's not quite a meat cute, but it's a reunion cute in some ways. And I really like that part of the film. And this is one of those moments, too, where he will start to just theorize, and he's not really sure if what he's saying is true or not. And he he gives this great line about, I'm just trying it out for size. You know, just he'll, he'll throw out theories out there just to see if they work or not. And he does that all the time. I mean, he did that with Antor, managed to get choked for his business, but he will do that kind of thing just to see what's going on. And then also for us, the readers, the audience, to see where his mind is at. And then also for us to kind of think of, oh, is this the way that the story is going? Usually it's not 100% there, but we're getting a little bit of that. And then we also get the cops show up at Anne's place and he basically gives a whole recap in case you had to go out to the lobby for popcorn or anything. He's going to give you a recap here to the cops. Um, and so now we have Randall uh, back in the movie. He's the guy who was interrogating Marlo at the beginning and has him here describing everything that's going on and then uh, managing to carry on with the movie from that. And really it's fairly soon hereafter, after he meets with uh, Anne's father and is talking about, Oh, yeah, when you see an older man with a younger woman and, you know, I had dreams of her actually marrying me for me and not for my money and yada, yada. Right around that, that's when we just go completely off book and the entire third act of the film is not contained in Chandler's novel um, strictly, but I think that it works very well. It really helps tie up some of these loose ends. It does, and it, it streamlines it in a way that works for the film. Because in a novel, it, there's this whole other thing where they go to that boat. There's another character named Brunette, who is sort of like this mobster type that has his, you know, hands in all, like the politicians and the police and all that stuff. And I think it was wise for them to sort of just jettison that character and that whole side plot and just focus on this, like, part of the story. And it works. I agree with you. You've got to get to the climax fairly soon because a lot of the movie's taken up before that point and, and then it accelerates the, the pace of it accelerates at this point. I kind of like the way that they did drift off the book. They, you know, the book is the engine, of course, of the story, but 
they decided from a cinematic point of view that they needed to cut away some characters, get to the point, give us a bit more of the motivations, particularly of Helen Grail and also um, of Mr. Grail. I mean, just having a little more of his um, character leads up to the climax nicely and we understand why he does certain things that he does at that point. Yeah, if anything, we kind of lead to one of the, uh, what would they call them, the English cozies where everyone is there in the drawing room together. And that's kind of how it ends. Like, we find out that Amthor has been snapped in the way that they put it and basically broken by Moose Malloy. Um, we have Helen Grail there, and it's basically Marlowe is being set up, but he knows he's being set up. So he's trying to set up her. He's trying to do this whole thing where, okay, Moose, you stay out here. And when I open up the curtains, then you come up and basically listen to me have, you know, you caught me monologuing, have uh, uh, Helen talk about all this stuff. And then you can hear that she is actually your Velma and then take her away. She's yours, <laughs> whatever you want to do. Instead, it ends up being like Helen is there, Marlo's there, and then Anne shows up, and then the father shows up, the dead body of Anthor is there, and then we have all of this family divestiture of information and all this stuff going on. And then eventually, after there's some shooting happening, uh, and the father ends up shooting his wife, then Moose comes in and sees his Velma on the floor, and then he ends up taking care of the father, and then, but, we are not privy to all of that because there's a very interesting point where the father goes to shoot at Moose just as Marlo is moving up into the frame and ends up getting jennied from the killer, gets a, a gun shot right by his eyes and has his corneas burned. And that's what eventually leads us back to the beginning of the movie where our private eye has no eyes anymore. And it's really a nice way to wrap this whole thing up very quickly. The other beautiful thing is that we never actually see the jade necklace that was supposed to be the engine of the plot. We see the box that he's, that it's in and, um, Marlo does look at it, but it's so unimportant at this stage. You don't actually need to see, um, the jade necklace, which was supposed to be so important to everybody. It's not really important at all. Yeah. It's a total MacGuffin. Yeah. And I feel bad Moose never got his reunion with Velma. You kind of feel bad for the big lug, even though he's now murdered, I don't know how many people, <laughs> but he does in the novel. Yeah, he does in the novel, which is really nice. And I appreciate that. But the thing is, she was playing Moose. So, you know, he doesn't deserve to be played one more time, I suppose, in some ways. Um, yeah, Helen's really kind of, you know, one of the people she dragged along to get what she wanted was Moose. So the fact that she's dead is kind of apt for him because he's been holding this, you know, holding a crush on her all this time in jail. And the the person he thought she was isn't the person she is. So it's, it's kind of a kindness to the character not to have him conned one more time and again after marlo gets his eyes damaged he falls back into that black pool so it's just one of these it's almost a recurring gag now by the time in this movie because now our hero's been knocked out three times reawakens and then he's telling his story in the police station and i've always been of the opinion that he has known that Anne grail is there the whole time though I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to think that or not, because after he tells his story, he gets sprung out of the, the jug and he ends up 
uh, being led down to the street and put into a car by this detective named Nolte, the one that I mentioned before, who got all the shit cases, as opposed to Randall, who's more of that other white knight that's here in uh, Los Angeles. And as he is leaving, he is saying all of these nice things about Anne and making a real point to talk about how, you know, he knew that Helen was using him and that, you know, wasn't a real kiss and all these kind of things that, you know, all the, the reasons that she would have to be jealous really weren't valid. And I'm just like, yeah, he pretty much must know that she's there the whole time. And it isn't until Nolte puts her, puts him, puts Marlo into a car and then and takes the place of Nulty, and at one point she brushes against Marlo, and then for sure we're supposed to know that they are uh, in this car together. We end up with we end up with some homosexual bashing, but no, it's not necessarily gay bashing. It's a homosexual joke, ha ha ha. You know, it was 1944. What are you gonna do? Um, it's not it's but, not a cruel homosexual joke. It's kind of like a soft one, a gentle one in a sense. Nolte, I haven't been kissed in, in so long. You know, please give me a kiss, Nolte. It's a nice ending for it. It kind of gives us that little up note. And yeah, it ends with a kiss, which is always a nice thing for a 1940s movie. Ends with a kiss and also ends up with him throwing his gun away because Helen had mentioned earlier, like, if you kiss someone with a, with a gun like that and you're, uh, you know, you'll bruise somebody. So it was kind of nice that he remembers that and throws the gun away. Yeah, it's, it's a satisfying film all around, really, isn't it? Still trying to figure out why. And what it could mean, but to me it was, you know, is that a gun in your pocket? You're happy to see me, kind of throw away Hayes code. Let's hide what's really going on here, kind of thing. And I'm not sure. I mean, we watching it today. I'm not. Sh- I, I would like to think Marlowe knows and had been there the entire time from the interrogation through the elevator going all the way outside, and that's why he's saying all those things because he throws he throws out these like comments like she's got a great body, but her face is okay. There's no question that he knew because you're not going to do that kind of thing just if there are cops around and particularly cops who haven't treated you wonderfully throughout the film. You're not really going to confide in them quite that much as a normal part of it. Yeah, she had a face like a Sunday school picnic. You know what I mean, Nolte? Yeah, the one thing that that I regret that this movie cuts is that amazing line that everybody quotes when they talk about Chandler and his his fantastic um, uh, use of metaphor when he talks about how Moose Malloy was as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a piece of angel food cake. And it's just like, oh yeah, that's such a nice thing. But unfortunately, he he meets him in different circumstances. Doesn't meet him on the street on Central Avenue. So he uh, doesn't have a chance to use that, I suppose. In terms of adapting a a novel that is so well-known, I mean, adapting the work from a writer who's so well-known for his descriptive passages, I think that this film does a really good job of coming up with visual equivalents, and we get enough of that descriptions through the dialogue. Uh, So I was okay with some of the stuff that was, because, I mean, Almost everything Chandler writes is just magic, right? Yeah, I think the movie should have been renamed The Black Pool, though. That would have been a good name for it. <laughs> I would have got it mixed up with that David Tennant thing, though, I think. Which David Tennant thing? Black Pool. 
Well, yeah, we didn't mention this whole idea of the book being called Farewell, My Lovely. And I read conflicting reports as to whether it was ever released as Farewell, My Lovely or not. I heard that it was, but then people are getting confused. But then I've also read it was never released as that because we knew people would get confused or thought people would get confused because we needed to put a harsher title on this. Put the word murder in there and then people will know that this is not another Dick Powell musical. Yeah, I've heard that too. I kind of like the title because you've got the murder in there, but you've also got the romance as well. So it's like murder, my sweet. It, it kind of works for both sides of things. Yeah, I think it's almost a perfect title apart from The Blackpool, which is my favorite. So we're going to take a break and play an interview with Tom Williams, the author of A Mysterious Something in the Light, The Life of Raymond Chandler. And we'll be back with that right after these brief words. They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reverence not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie-rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertreestories.com. 
This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? My name is Tom Williams, and I am the author of Raymond Chandler, A Life, A Mysterious Something in the Light. What got you interested in writing, and specifically what got you interested in writing about Chandler? When I was doing my, my degree back in the early 2000s, I took a course in crime writing. And one of the, the seminars was on Chandler. And this is my first, first time reading his, his stuff. And we sat down, read The Big Sleep, and I kind of thought, this is, this is pretty good. Immediately picked up, fell on my lovely and thought, hang on a second, this is awesome. And then kind of very quickly worked my way through all of the novels. And I ended up writing uh, a thesis on Chandler and the kind of evolution of crime fiction in the 20th century. And as part of that, I started looking at the biographies uh, that had been written in the past. I I looked at the letters, the collections of letters available, and obviously the novels themselves. And I felt that there was a mismatch between the novels and the letters and the biographies that had already been written about trying to uh, fill in the gaps myself. And that mission became a book in, in and of itself and my take on his life. So how did you go about starting your research on him? Chandler was, like his, his life, he was he divided in two. So Chandler is part British and part American, and his archive is exactly the same. So I spent several months living in California researching at the UCLA uh, archive, and they have this wonderful collection of letters. It's actually pretty accessible. You can go in and sit down and, and work your way through the carbon copies and originals of his letters. And then I, I spent some time in the, the Bodleian Library in Oxford doing the same. And as part of that, I managed to find some really early letters that, that hadn't been discovered before. They'd been recently archived at UCLA, and they, they really shed some fascinating light onto, onto Chandler's early life, this kind of period between his being made redundant um, at the Dabney Corporation, Dabney Oil um, Company, and his starting to write The Big Sleep in 1938, and these letters were, were to his best friend, and they really shared some fascinating light on, on, on what his life was during his, his very, very early pulp days and what motivated him to, to kind of read and write pulp stories. Pulp fiction wasn't necessarily the highest paying job in the world unless you were able to really garner attention and be known, you know, the, the kind of almost it was a stepping stone to breaking out of it. There were people who managed to make a living out of being pulp writers, but they were writing, I think I read somewhere up to a million words a year which is an extraordinary amount. And that wasn't necessarily a comfortable salary that they were, or a com- comfortable ways that they were earning. And also it's worth noting that Chandra in the oil industry had, had earned a lot of money. I mean, he was used to a, a decent standard of life. So when he started writing in pulps, he didn't go in there thinking, this is going to be my ticket to fame and fortune. He saw it as an opportunity to learn to write. Um, he'd always wanted to write novels. He'd always, always, always wanted to write literature, I think. And he started off as a poet in, in, uh, the 1900s in, in London and had been terrible at it. When he first moved to LA in 1913, um, he listed himself in the local telephone directory as a writer. 
even though at the time he was starting his life uh, as, a, as an accountant. So he, in his mind, he'd, he'd always seen himself as a writer. Then he found his way into the oil industry, made his money, got sacked, and still harbored this ambition and, and decided to, 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 to really have a good go. And he knew he needed to have some money coming in, so he looked for his easiest way or the most straightforward way of, of, of writing in a regular way and earning money. And that, that proved to be the pulp. And he, he turned out to be very, very good at it. His first stories were, were cover magazine, were covers of the magazine, which was very prestigious. He really sort of showed himself to be very, very good at, at, at writing this kind of story. One of the reasons why he could never, um, make a lot of money out of it is that his stories took a very, very long time to write. I think his first story, Black Meadows Don't Shoot, took something like five or six months to, to, to write. Uh, and he would have been paid, you know, $100, $200 for the work. I can't remember the exact amount, but definitely not a fair recompense for the amount of work that had got into it. Whereas most pulp writers were writing, you know, story a week, if not more, um, to survive. But Chalmers saw the pulps as an opportunity, a place to hone his craft, but always with the ambition of, of doing something more. Earlier this year, we did uh, actually a couple episodes based on the works of Dashiell Hammett. And one of the questions I asked my subjects for that was, how close was Dashiell Hammett to the Continental Op? And I want to ask you the same question. How close was Raymond Chandler to Philip Marlowe? There's always a little bit of a trick in both the Continental Op and Philip Marlowe. And both Philip Marlowe and the Continental Op are, are you know, they're, they're, they are the narrator of the novels. And it's very easy to fall into that trick of the I being not Marlowe, but Raymond Chandler. The truth is that there are definite elements of Raymond Chandler that filter into Philip Marlowe's voice. Yeah, and, and, and on is this in, in the high window. There's some very interesting discussion about, about mother. Um, and Chandler had a very complicated relationship with his mother. And, you know, one of my, one of the things that I see when I, I, I read, um, the high window is I see Chandler talking about Chandler's most to come through in, in, in Philip Marlowe. The other thing that Philip Marlowe famously had, uh, has a, has a problem with that Roman Chandler shared is his drinking. I mean, Philip Marlowe is a heavy drinker. If you think about the log goodbye, you've got Roger Wade, who is an author, and who can type perfect prose no matter what state of mind he is in, uh, no matter how much how drunk he is. That is something that people had said of Raymond Chandler. Terry Lennox, too, also you know, one of the main, main, main characters within the long goodbye and, and the kind of central relationship is between Lennox and, and, and Philip Marlowe. He too had something of, uh, of Chandler in, in him. Certainly his, his wartime experiences seem to you know, just hint at some of, of Chandler's own. My point is Chandler used himself in, in, in certain ways, almost certainly, but not in this very clear cut, I am Philip Marlowe, or Philip Marlowe is me. I think Raymond Chandler, parts of Raymond Chandler appear in, uh, in all sorts of characters in, in, in his writing. So once he starts to get published and get noticed, and I imagine he's noticed fairly quickly, how does that kind of go? How does he break out of the pulps and into the mainstream, or does he stay at pulp ghetto for a while? So he writes his first pulp stories in 32, 
And as I said, he always wanted to write novels, really. Well, certainly that's where his mind was turning to, is, was that he wanted to write uh, kind of a novel. His stories got picked up very, very quickly. I mean, his first one was published straight away, and almost immediately they start becoming these cover stories. But Chandler himself decided that the easiest way to turn stories, turn this kind of into a career, was to do his novel by combining two of his stories together. And the two stories that, that Chandler chose to combine were the, the Killer in the Rain and the Curtain. And what this gave him is a, is a, is a neat skeleton onto which to hang hang his story. And so he starts fleshing out in, in detail the elements of Killer in the Rain and the Curtain and sort of adding layers of detail that would never have made it past the editor's pen in, in, in a pulp story. I mean, pulp stories were all about the action. In The Big Sleep, you have something more than action. You have these kind of quite ponderous moments at times. You know, if you think about the, the, the final line of Philip Marlowe saying, talking about sleeping in a big sleep, that isn't very pulpy. It's not a very pulpy moment. It's a very kind of introspective and it, it's a moment that lacks action in many ways. So, so he, he took these two stories, put them together, and then sent them off to an agent and got signed up. And the rest is history, really. He became, you know, the big sleep got, got picked up at a time when this kind of story was doing very, very well. Dashiell Hammett, as you, as you mentioned, had, had made a lot of money for Knopf, uh, in the States. Knopf were the, were the publishers of the big sleep, and they really thought that this was going to be the next Dashiell Hammett. As it turned out, at first they were wrong, and and Chandler didn't sell as well as he'd hoped, and didn't actually make that break out of the crime reviewing section of the newspaper, which is something he was very very frustrated about. In the course of his career, he got he he always saw his his novels as as novels really, and he thought that reviewers always saw them as as kind of crime stories, and he rails against different parts of his career. He rails against the, the writers of these reviews for not recognizing the, the kind of literary elements to What was his relationship with Hollywood? What was kind of the timeline? Because I know he was both writing screenplays and then having his work adapted as films. Which came first? I think the first novel that got picked up was Farewell, My Lovely, which is his, his second novel. And, and you can imagine, you know, here is this, guy living in LA with actually no real connection. He had no connection to the movie business in, in the 30s at all. He moved to LA because of the oil, well, attracted to the oil industry. He actually made, made friends on his journey over very fortuitously with a family who lived in LA. And LA was a, a new city in 1912, 1913, when Chandler was thinking about moving there. And Chandler moves there in 1913, and water only really arrived in, in 1912 with the opening of the viaduct. And that suddenly means that Los Angeles can move from being a city of 100,000 souls into the mega megapolis that it is today. But Chandler moves there for work, for oil. At the same time, this movie industry was growing up, and the movie industry was there for very different reasons. So Chandler was working in parallel the movie industry. Although he did seem to know about it, and some of his stories definitely involve Hollywood actresses, and he was very, very aware of, of it. And he and his wife, Sissy, enjoy going to the movies. So his first novels, uh, and as I'm pretty sure it was Fair My Lovely, got, got picked up for adaptation, 
the early versions weren't very good. I think there's a there's a sequel to the Maltese Falcon, possibly, which is based upon Fell My Lovely. I might be wrong in that, but I'm pretty sure that the early story, the early novels, were picked up. They were rehashed with other detectives in mind, and Chandler really had no interest in working in the movie, as far as I, I can see, until. Um, he gets approached by the makers of, of, of Dublin Indemnity in 1914-42. And, and that was a really, really extraordinary moment in his career because he kind of came out of the blue. So 1943 was the first little knock at the door. And it came because Billy Wilder and his producing partner, Joseph Sistrom were working on Dublin Demnity. And Dublin Demnity was a difficult novel to adapt for the screen because it was all about sex and murder. And as I'm sure you're aware, there, there, there wasn't much display of, there, there was this um, kind of self-censorship around, around certain themes in, in, in Hollywood um, at, at the time. Um, because all of these movies had to had to get renewed to the Hayscape. So anyway, so 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 Joseph and Billy Wilder had this idea of adapting Dublin Demnity for the for the screen. They knew that it was going to be hard because of the Hayscape, and they were looking around for writers. And it happened that Joseph Sistrom was reading one of Chalmers' novels, and they thought, well, let's try this guy, and. The way that it, it, it has been told, and I, I don't think this is, I don't know if there's any reason for it not to be true, is that Joe Sistrom calls up Chandler pretty much out of the blue and said, would you be interested in doing it? And Chandler is so naive about the whole experience that he thinks he can do it, write the entire screenplay within a week or certainly by the following week and, and receive a thousand dollars for it. Joseph Sistrom and Billy Wilder said, no, 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 that's not the deal we're offering. They wanted to pay $750 a week, um, but it would take a number of weeks to write. And so they brought Chandler in after their, he had stood up to their initial meeting um, with a quick draft <laughs> of what he thought the story would be. And they explained to him how it actually worked. They gave him an office. And then together, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler wrote the screenplay for Dublin Dynasty. And of course, that has become the great noir movie and really just stands uh, head and shoulders above, I think, almost every other noir movie of the period. When Chandler gets into writing for films, does he continue writing novels at the same time or does that take up all of his time? In 43, he had, by this time, he'd written The Big Sleep, Fell My Lovely, The Lady in the Lake, and uh, The High Window. So he'd kind of done four of his seven novels. So he kind of done the majority of his, of his work, I guess you could say. The trouble is, is that to write his novels, he'd actually taken a break from drinking or something significantly reduced his drinking. It's worth remembering that one of the contributing factors to his, uh, his sacking from the oil industry was his heavy drinking. And he talks about, uh, in the 30s, when he's learning to write for pulps, he, he talks about reducing his drinking. One of the problems with working in Hollywood in, in, in 43 was that that gave him, put him in this, this very clubby, man, manly atmosphere where he could sit and drink and talk. And the impression I get from, from my research about Hollywood is, is this kind of boys club and you could walk in and uh, whenever you wanted 
and there was drink freely flowing and conversation to be had and deadlines and timelines were very, very fluid. So it was an atmosphere that was not necessarily conducive to a guy with a drinking problem. So, so Chana was working on movies. He had a contract with a student and he did uh, basically script doctoring for a period. So after time in Denmark, he, he worked on other people's scripts. Didn't particularly love this, but was in a, in, a, in a space where he could drink quite a lot, talk quite a lot. He was viewed as, 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 as this kind of father figure, man experience by some of the younger writers in the studio. Uh, and that really took up all of his time. He wasn't writing very much. If you think 1940s he even entered Hollywood, it wasn't until some way to the film industry or had harsh portraits of the film industry in it. Did he ever adapt himself or was he only adapting the works of other people? So he had a go at adapting a version of The Lady in the Lake for MGM and it didn't work out terribly well. As a movie writer, he was very, very high maintenance after his early successes. And I think some of the stories that might be exaggerated, it's very, very difficult to tell, but I think he was, he could be, he could be hard work. And um, he was working originally for Paramount and MGM basically came to an agreement with Paramount to borrow Chandler so that he could, he could walk off that version of, of the lady in the lake. But he, he did a little bit of it, uh, hated it and escaped basically. He did not do a, a particularly good job of it by his own admission. So in answer to your question, yes, he did adapt himself, but not very effectively. What? came the closest to a a really good adaptation of Chandler's work. It depends on what you mean by faithful adaptation of Chandler's work. On the one hand, there is the original version of Big Feet, which I, I think is a pretty faithful I certainly feels like it's very connected to the novel in so many ways. And and you know, Chandler did see does seem to have had some input into the script, but he was certainly around when it was being made. And I still, I think as a movie, it, it's a wonderful movie. There's something about Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye that stands out for me. Now, I don't think that Robert Altman's version of The Long Goodbye is a particularly faithful adaptation of the novel, but he does capture something about, about Philip Marlowe that I think is really, really difficult. That final moment of the movie, the decision that Philip Marlowe makes about Terry Lennox and the resulting isolation, you know, him walking away and, and, and whistling on his own, that captures something about the real loneliness of being Philip Marlowe that I don't think other movies have captured in quite the same way. And I think that's a, a, a testament to the people who, who, who made the film, really. They saw something that they created something that didn't necessarily, they created scenes that don't exist in the novel. And yet they capture something really essential and, uh, about Philip Marlowe. With Chandler, he was alive when some of the adaptations, some of the best known adaptations of his own work occurred. And he's working in the industry as people are adapting his work. Does he have any interest in this or does he see these and have an opinion of say murder my sweet or the big sleep or lady in the lake? Obviously I think he has an opinion of lady in the lake, but what is that like for him seeing his own creation up on screen? He knew enough about screenwriting. He understood enough about the novel 
to uh, uh, and the screenwriter, the, the differences in the process to kind of recognize that, that what could be achieved in the novel could not necessarily be achieved on screen and, and vice versa. I mean, he, he liked the big thing, I think, um, the adaptation, the, the kind of um, the famous uh, Humphrey Bogart adaptation. But I don't think he, he loved it. Um, I think he kind of saw it as a, a decent attempt. But in general, I think his thoughts on adaptations were pretty quiet. I mean, he doesn't really, he doesn't really talk about it in any great way. When he first saw it, there is a letter where uh, he does talk about it. And he says, when and if you see the big sleep, the first half of it anyway, you will realize what can be done with this sort of story by a director with the gift of atmosphere and the requisite touch of hidden sadism. Bogart, of course, is always so much better than any other tough guy actor that he makes bums of the lads and the pals. As we say here, Bogart can be tough without a gun. But he later goes on to say, the girl who played the nymphy sister was so good she shattered Mr. Bacall completely. So they cut the picture in such a way as all of her best scenes were left out except one. The result made nonsense, and Howard Hawks threatened to stew to restrain Waters from releasing the picture. After a long argument with I hear it, he went back and did a lot of reshooting. So uh, he did have uh, opinions on, on, on these things, but I think they were private, by and large. Well, he definitely wasn't that private when it came to writing about his own craft and even going out there and talking about what it's like to write the Marlowe character. And that's the most verbose that I've seen an author about his own craft in a, in a long time. I mean, I'm sure there are other authors who do that, but he seemed to be very vocal about what he was doing with his own way of going about things. The piece that you're talking about is the, the Art of Murder which appeared in the Atlantic. And, you know, the Atlantic is, and still is, a kind of very well, kind of well-respected, very uh, intellectually-minded magazine. Chandler loved being able to write for it. But you, I think one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that he was also trying to make a case for his own work at this time. As I said earlier on, one of the things that really frustrated Raymond Chandler was that his novels weren't always seen as novels. For him... They were, were for reviewers, and much to Chandler's frustration, they were seen as, as crime stories. And part of the art of murder is him going, hang on a second, I put a lot of effort into, and a lot of thought into how I create and craft these novels, uh, and this is my process. Unless you can compare me to Agatha Christie. But frankly, I'm nothing like Agatha Christie, and here are the reasons why. Yes, he was for both, but he was also really, really trying to make a case for his type of fiction. And I think that's worth worth bearing in mind. He, he was always trying to make this case. We talked a little bit about at the beginning of his relationship with Hollywood. How did that end? Not well, <laughs> as you might imagine. So, so Chandler sort of, he got more and more demanding with his work. Famously, he wrote a movie called The Blue Dahlia. To finish it quickly, the, so the story goes, he agreed with the studio to write the, the final pages very, very drunk. There is some debate about how true this is, but I think either way it does show that he, at this time in his career, he was someone who could put a lot of demands on a studio because he was seen as a kind of very, very well-respected screenwriter and a very valuable uh, screenwriter. Although, Truth be told, it's never been 100% clear why that is, because 
other than Double Indemnity, you know, the movies that he made weren't in any way great money spinners, and the screenwriter um, was never a, a kind of uh, draw, and still, as far as I'm aware, is not, unfortunately, much to screenwriter's frustration. He found himself in, uh, in the 50s invited to collaborate with Alfred Hitchcock, and that proved to be a very, very difficult relationship. So Alfred Hitchcock was adapting Strangers on the Train by Patricia Highsmith. Originally, I think, had approached Dashiell Hammett to do it, and Dashiell Hammett had, had, had said no. So Hitchcock approached Chandler, Chandler agreed, and they had a huge falling out that at some point may or may not have involved Chandler calling uh, Hitchcock a fat bastard. They just didn't get on. They had very, very different visions for the movie. And in the end, Alfred Hitchcock discarded most of what Chandler had written. It was awful. And Chandler tried to have, at one point, his, his name removed from, from the resulting film. But it was eventually capped. And that really put Chandler off Hollywood. And he would never write another screenplay again after that. So I know Strangers on a Train comes out in 51, and Marlowe ends up passing away in 59. What were those last years like for him? You mean Chandler passed away in 59. Very easy slip to make. I, I think I find myself doing that a lot. They were they were difficult. By this time, Chandler was drinking a lot more. Um, so in 51, he kind of turns his back on Hollywood. In 53, he writes Long Goodbye, which a lot of people um, view as perhaps his greatest kind of achievement as a novel. Uh, and it's a fascinating book. Really, really is. I mean, it's, it's very, very well done. And, and when you think about it, when you look at it as a crime story, it is odd because the murder that motivates the story actually happens off stage. You know, it's very, very odd. Every other Chana novel, the, the kind of the murder happens fairly early on. And Marlowe, or the crime, fairly early on, Marlowe finds himself investigating. Actually, with Long Goodbye, it doesn't. It happens completely off stage. And really what the Long Goodbye is, is a kind of detailed look at, at, at Philip Marlowe. Interesting enough, he also tried to write the Long Goodbye as a third-person story and just couldn't get it to work. Um, he tried to abandon Philip Marlowe a number of times, and the Long Goodbye was his kind of concerted effort. He couldn't get it to work and unfortunately the third person version of, of, of it is lost if if it was ever more than just an idea so so Chandler is is drinking a lot he is writing there is some very very complicated work with his agent at the time because his agent didn't like would object she liked it objected to elements of of of, of the longer buyer is really upset Raymond Chandler but the novel comes out in 53 and then the following year his, his wife died. Sissy, who'd been ill for some time and was about 18 years older than, than Raymond and had been, as I said, not very well, died and, and this pushed Chandra over the edge. He, he was devastated. He drank a lot more, even more. He already had a drink out. He spent some of his, the 50s in London as well, moving um, between London and Los Angeles. He kind of went very off the rails he started a number of relationships that, or he claimed to have a number of relationships. Basically, in London, he claimed to be a master seducer at various dinner parties he went to. But the attendees of these, these dinner parties didn't really believe him because he was always so drunk 
that uh, the stories he told about you know rescuing damsel in distress and about uh, seducing these women uh, just didn't seem plausible. Um, he was living really this kind of parallel fantasy life. Towards the very end of his life, he did meet uh, a woman called Helga Green, who started out as his, out as his agent and eventually became his, his partner. They, they fell in love. And shortly before he died, they agreed to get married. But Helga Green's father said no and refused permission. And Chandler was a gentleman who saw himself, at least as he's always had this kind of very chivalric notion of love. Um, so he wanted to be, you know, right about being, you know, doing, he saw himself it was important to do what was right. And, uh, when, when Helga's father said no, he was, he was very upset. Um, so they didn't end up getting married, but, uh, Chandler continued to drink, uh, and he only wrote one more novel after, after the one goodbye, and that was Playback, which interestingly enough started out as a, um, he wrote the, 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 the screenplay for a playback in uh, the late 40s, early 50s, um, before he did Strangers on the Train. And he re, rewrote it as a novel, as a Marlowe novel, right towards the end of his life. He died in, in 1959, and actually he was working on a Philip Marlowe story at the time called The Poodle Spring Mystery that remains unfinished. But he, he, he died a pretty miserable and pretty lonely death, I think, drunk, unable to get over uh, really the death of Sissy. Um, in, in many ways, and uh, unable to to escape the the demon of, of, of alcoholism. Is it fair to ask you how uh, Poodle Springs ended up being finished by Robert Parker? I don't know a huge amount about it. I would have thought. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I my my guess is it's a bit like the 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 Benjamin Black, um, the recent Benjamin Black kind of version of of, of Philip Marlowe. Yeah, you know, it's a good way of uh, of exploiting right. Tom, what are you working on these days after having this successful, uh, you know, just I know that publishing makes tons and tons of money. So you're probably just sitting on a mountain of cash now after this Raymond Chandler <laughs> book. I wish I wish writing has always been a, a not a hobby, but a, a kind of sideline. I actually work in tech. So I, I run the marketing department for an app firm in London. Um, but I'm currently researching a, a new idea, um, which is looking at the relationship between authors and fathers. One of the things I think is really fascinating about Raymond Chandler is uh, his own relationship, or maybe lack of relationship is a better way of saying it, with, with his father. His father left, or he left rather, his father was a, a violent alcoholic, and Chandler's mother whisked young Chandler away about the age of eight. And that, I think, had a, a very interesting impact on I'm done in many ways. I'm currently kind of researching how, how what other writers have kind of experienced that, how same the same sort of experience has impacted them. Tom, is there a good place for people to keep up with you online? Follow me on Twitter. I think is, is the best. Twins eighty one. T Williams eighty one. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. My pleasure. It was really good. Thank you so much for asking me. Boost, Mitchum, the last of the tough guys, meets Rampling, the hottest of the new broads, in Raymond Chandler's sizzling murder classic, Farewell, My Lovely. Your name's Phil, isn't it? Philip. What's yours? 
Helen, kiss me. Philip Marlowe, the most famous private eye of them all, is up to his eyeballs in murder. And he's everybody's favorite target. Where to? My place. What for? You got everything we need with you. Robert Mitchum, Charlotte Rampling, in Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely. Chandler's sizzling murder classic, Farewell, My Lovely. Why don't you come over here and sit beside me? You know, I've been thinking about that for some time. Ever since you first crossed your legs, to be exact. These damn things are always up around your neck. Your name's Phil, isn't it? Philip. What's yours? Helen, kiss me. Philip Marlowe the most famous private eye of them all, is up to his eyeballs in murder. And he's everybody's favorite target. Look, this is a gun. <laughs> when you got a gun in your hand, people are supposed to do what you tell them to do. What I need is another drink. I need a lot of life insurance. I need a home in the country. I need a vacation. I've got a hat, a coat, and a gun. That's it. Where to? My place. What for? You've got everything we need with you. Let you and me go on up, huh? Okay, but leave off carrying me, will you? I can walk by myself. I'm all grown up now. I go to the bathroom by myself and everything. Get down. Robert Mitchum, Charlotte Rampling, and Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely. All right, we're back and we're talking about Murder, My Sweet. So I mentioned in the intro that this was not actually the first adaptation of this source material, and that was done in just two years prior in a series called The Falcon, and this was uh, the third movie, I think it was, The Falcon Takes Over. I don't know what it was, but I always thought that they had been making movies about the Maltese Falcon, and so like this was part of that, but no, that's not the case at all. This has nothing to do with the Maltese Falcon. And I didn't realize uh, our, our lead in that, George Sanders, that he was the saint before he was well, his name in this is not the Falcon, but apparently that's somehow, I guess maybe it's like the Thin Man, you know, they call the movies the Thin Man, even though 
you know, William Powell is not the thin man. It was just, it was the murder in the first movie. So I'm not sure how the Falcon got his name. My understanding is there was a novel called The Gay Falcon. And yeah. the character's name was literally Gay Falcon. Yeah, this one, his name is Gay Lawrence, which reminds me of Gay Perry and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang for some reason. I kind of like, I've watched a few of the Falcon movies because they turn up late at night on free-to-wear television here in Australia. For some reason, somebody got a budget from them on Channel 7, and they put them on late at night, and they're usually an hour, an hour and ten minutes or something like that. They don't outstay their welcome, and they're lighthearted. They've got the same supporting characters. You've got James Gleason playing the O'Hara, the police inspector, and Alan Jenkins playing the Falcon sidekick, Goldie Locke, and they're, they're a little bit of fun. I didn't get until right now Goldie Lock. I knew they kept calling him Goldie, but I did not pick up on Goldie Lock. Okay. And the funny thing, too, is that Hans Conried turned up in the first three Falcon movies, playing three totally unrelated characters. George Sanders' brother, Tom Conway, took on the role after a while. This is another interesting thing. I think, I believe it's the first Falcon movie, The Falcon Strikes Back. That was directed by Edward Dimitrik. I had found it out doing my research today of all days. Yeah, I was like, whoa, he directed one of the first Falcon movies. But yeah, the Falcon series, from my understanding, were just meant to be continuations of the Saints series, or there was an association with the Saints series. In fact, I think the author of the Saint actually tried to sue the producers behind the Falcon for taking the same con- concept and just slapping the Falcon on instead of the Saint, because apparently it was more or less the same character. But my feeling about this film, I had the same reaction to it. I had the Satan Metal Lady. It's that same thing where you're watching it and you're like, wow, this is following the plot, the storyline. But it's just weird hearing different characters attached to these different names attached to these characters sort of interacting with each other. And the tone is so weird, so different. Even the detect, even the main detective character is this sophisticated gad about man about town, you know, as opposed to like this hard boiled character, just like in Saint Metal Lady. And, but I thought, but I, I was surprised at how, I wouldn't say faithful it was, but how it really did hit actual story points from the book and stuff that would turn up in the, the consequent adaptations of Farewell, Farewell My Lovely. Yeah, I think the bit that didn't work for me in this one, because I, I do kind of like the Falcon movies, is Ward Bond playing Moose, because Ward Bond wasn't taller than most other people, and it was shot from a low angle to make him appear taller. And it looks like he's cashing a check a bit. He doesn't really give to it the same as Mike Mazurki did with um, Murder My Sweet. And he's he there's no menace to his Moose, which is kind of disappointing. He actually, that actually threw me off because I'm sort of a Ward Bond fan, especially with his work with, uh, John Ford, uh, a really good actor. And he's almost too good in this in that he's delivering like a very serious performance as Moose Malloy, which doesn't really work for that character. Serious sometimes, but also somnambulistic at times too, where it's just like, you know, like I was talking about how he seems like a golem and there are times where it, this character does feel like a golem more by Ward Bond than, than, uh, Mike Mazursky as far as like the lack of expression and just feels like I am on my mission and nothing will stop me. Where is Sarah Connor? Right. Exactly. This is very much an incredibly lighter film than, uh, Murder My Sweet. 
And I kind of the interesting thing is George Sanders isn't particularly good at it, but the supporting characters are fantastic. Alan Jenkins playing Goldie and James Gleason playing the inspector steal every scene they're in outrageously. And I, I kind of love that about these films. Gleason is fantastic. And when I was watching this, I just kept thinking of him in one of my absolute favorite films, Arsenic and Old Lace, and just how fantastic he is in that. And he, it's basically the exact same character, the police chief or the policeman who is, is surrounded by things that he doesn't really care for and just gets frustrated by it. You know, he's got in the Falcon takes over, he's got this, um, uh, sidekick, his, lieutenant or whoever he is that uh just he's absolutely uh incredibly stupid and just the whole way that uh he'll say like well i'm the one with the gold star and you're the one with the silver star so you're gonna have to listen to me (laughs) Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of fun in their own way and alan jenkins is great in this as well he gets a lot of the best lines and uh gets strangled by moose malloy five or six times there's some interesting parts to this, and yeah, I, I agree that this does remind me of uh, Satan Meta Lady as well, especially the different tone to it. And I really made a point earlier of talking about how desperate Marlowe is and that he's kind of at the end of his rope. You know, he's he's the kind of private eye who doesn't even have the secretary in the outside lobby. He doesn't want another mouth to feed. He can barely feed his own. Having Gay Lawrence or whoever in this one in the Falcon movies, who is, uh, you know, the first time we see him, he's wearing full uh, evening dress. And so he is not hurting for money. He is the gentleman detective. So it is 180 degrees from the desperation that Marlowe has. He's also famous. He's like a celebrity detective or whatever he's supposed to be, right? Uh, I guess a freelance troubleshooter or something like that. Yeah, that's why he keeps sending Goldie to do things for him because he'll be recognized if he goes anywhere. So Goldie ends up being on the front end of the danger and um, ends up getting arrested and strangled by Moose and all the other bits and pieces. But uh, we also have a di- very different Jules Amthor in this one with Turham Bay turning up as a very oriental Jules Amthor in just one scene of this film. Yeah, yeah, I found that very interesting as well. And it, the way that he's got the gun underneath the desk and everything, I was just like, oh, okay, that's an interesting way to play it. And it's not, you know, that scene, the setup in Murder by Sweet, this whole, like, I'll bring my own um, crystal ball, you know, it's much more light and then it turns dark, whereas it feels very dark as soon as he gets into that Anthor situation in this one. And then we also have another adaptation of this movie, which was done in 1975. And we'll be talking a lot more about 70s detectives when we talk about The Long Goodbye in two weeks. Because it was interesting that we had The Long Goodbye in, what was it, 73? And then we have Farewell, My Lovely in 75 and The Big Sleep in 78. And obviously, Elliot Gould did not continue playing Philip Marlowe after The Long Goodbye, we have these two uh, Robert Mitchum films. So Mitchum playing a much older Philip Marlowe to the point where he's talking about how much older he is in the opening monologue of Farewell, My Lovely. And uh, so kind of putting this different spin on it, obviously Mitchum had been in some of the original films noir, noir, such as Out of the Past, these kind of movies. So having him show up in this and then also 
this idea, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, again, we'll talk in the long goodbye. Long goodbye is very much set in the 1970s. Yes, they play with earlier Hollywood conventions, these kind of things. This 75 film is really set in a very specific time. And you can almost find out the exact dates if you are a baseball fan and listening to this whole weird running commentary that Marlowe has through this entire film of this street Joe DiMaggio is on because he is obsessed with it and just keeps talking about this whole thing. And eventually it becomes a metaphor for other things that are going on, but it just feels like this weird, very time specific thing to talk about that. And I suppose to talk about American idealism, and the importance of heroes and all these kind of things. Farewell, My Lovely is an interesting adaptation because it it's so close at times and then it veers off into weird ways and then it comes back to it and then it veers off again and it just it feels like you're on one of those country roads where all of a sudden there's a big hook in the road and you have to make a quick turn and then you lead back into that nice smooth path again. It's really kind of weird. I believe... I. I- don't know if this is true or not. My theory is for all my lovely came out because, uh, or they put money into this, uh, because, you know, this period of the seventies, there was like a resurgence of neo noir. You had like modern contemporary takes on it coming out, you know, like the long goodbye or, uh, night moves, or you had, you know, Chinatown. You know, which came out, I think, a year before Farewell, My Lovely. But Farewell, My Lovely, I, it's, it's a weird movie to me. I, I appreciate the fact that it was set in period and there seems to be a concerted effort to pay attention to detail. You know, you, you talked about, you know, the Joe DiMaggio references. There's also a lot of, you know, references about the encroaching war, but the film feels flat to me. It doesn't have that oomph that, that you would get from say like a Chinatown or something like that. It's a remarkably cast film. I mean, you, watching this film, you're like, oh my God, that's, that's, uh, John Ireland. Oh my God, that's Harry Dean Stanton. Look, Sylvester Stallone, Joe Spinell, right? My favorite bit of casting in this film actually is Jim Thompson. That, that I'm just like, wow, Jim Thompson, who I'm a huge fan of. He doesn't have a large part. In fact, they kind of shrink his role down a bit from the way it was in the novel, probably because he's just not an actor, not a real actor. But the film just somehow, it, it's, it kind of, I think it's kind of boring, actually. It's, it's weirdly paced to me. I think they spend way too much time with the, uh, the Florian character, the Jesse Florian character. They return to her one too many times, or at least it feels like that to me. I think Sylvia Miles is okay in that part. But I feel like uh, that character, as she's portrayed, uh, uh, with as little screen time as she had in Murder, My Sweet, is so much more memorable to me. Yeah, she's in the book more, and there it's kind of more true to life that Moose goes up and sees her and ends up killing her and shaking the truth out of her so much that he you know ends up murdering her, but he doesn't know his own strength. He's one of more bodies in the book than there are in the movies, but she's helpful to Marlowe rather than being an antagonist, which is a really weird thing. I think she works better as an antagonist. The whole thing of like this uh, musician character who is in the hotel across from where Florian's used to be. And he's married to this African American lady. And then Sylvia miles talking about, you know, is he still married to that N word? And it's just like, Okay, yeah, again, we're being kind of time specific to stuff, but it's just his introduction, the, the, this new character, this musician character 
doesn't make any sense. Who really cares about him? There's some fake pathos with his kids and like, is my daddy going to be okay? And then Marlo has to explain that, you know, the, their dad is dead in a scene that takes place off off screen. It's like, who cares? You know, I'm sorry to sound cold hearted, but he is not part of the story and it just doesn't really matter. You know, they just should have just left him be. He wasn't in the book. He wasn't in murder. My sweet. He wasn't in the Falcon takes over. So who cares? You know, he's just this, this added character. There's other weird things too, you know, talking about Orientalism, like at one point, they say, oh, yeah, go uh, – if you want to know about Jade, go to Chinatown. And he ends up talking to this Chinese guy for like a half a second. It's like, oh, you you know, and again, they're speaking in like the broken English. And I'm just like, oh, God, really? This is so embarrassing. You know, like bad for glass, right? You know, and it's like, oh, okay, great. So I end up sending him over to uh, another place. And it's like, okay, yeah, this wasn't that necessary Either, you know, the, the murder my suite condensed those connections. You know, we, this character then became that character in order to make that connection smaller and smarter and quicker. Whereas in this, it feels like they're throwing more bodies into the mill and just like, Oh, now, now go talk to that guy who wasn't in the book. Now go talk to that guy who wasn't in the book and just adding more of these you know, tertiary characters are not even tertiary. They'd be, they'd be lucky to be, uh, you know, at that level just to keep us going. And yeah, it does feel really flat. And then they do that um, gender swap on Amthor as well, which makes it slightly more interesting, but not very much. One of the things I like about this film is that it's one of those movies that shows us exactly how short Sylvester Stallone actually is. And I appreciate that. I have never heard Stallone talk about Joe Spinell, but those guys have been in so many movies together that they must have been pals off screen. And I can only imagine, and please somebody, if you're listening, give me a, a, a documentary or a weekly adventure show of the week, the adventures of Spinell and Stallone. I mean, that must have been quite a party, those two guys getting together. And yeah, I love when they're there. Um, Burton Gilliam, who I just talked about last week when we talked about the game, away him spinel stallone and mitchum all in one frame i was just like wow this is pretty amazing and then yeah going to see kate murtaugh and yeah i did like that and i like that she was this kind of hardcore lesbian and stuff but you know stallone ends up being the one to kill her and it's like okay this is odd and it's you know could have been moose malloy killing her could have been marlo killing her but no it was you know again like stallone might show up later on and on um, Burnett's boat or something. I know Spinell does, but yeah, who cares? It really doesn't do it for me. I like the idea of gender swapping the character and, and what they turn that character into. She's basically a madam, brothel madam, but the way it's presented, it's so condensed that I, I felt like that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, the, I think the thing with this film is the pacing is totally shit. I don't want to say anything bad about Charlotte Rampling. I think Charlotte Rampling is a gorgeous woman, but she is not the level or the type of gorgeousness, let's say, that Claire Trevor was. She is not the kind of woman that could have been manipulating all of these men just on looks alone. And she ends up being our femme fatale. It's kind of a surprise, but when you, that surprise happens, it's just like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. I don't see how she is in all these places at once, and I don't see her manipulating these guys the way that a Claire Trevor could. Even the blonde from The Falcon Takes Over, I think, was a little bit more attractive, even though 
Yeah, she was a pretty terrible actress, I have to say, at the end of the day. I think Charlotte Rampling can could be believable as that character. I just think the way it was written, it's weird because they completely removed the Anne character from this. And I think it needed that additional female character for the mystery aspect of it. Because we just have that one f- female character. Well, who else is Velma going to be? It's got to be her. And yet, I don't think they gave Charlotte Rampling or her character enough to do for us to understand where they're going with that. Because I think she, Rampling definitely as an actress, I think she's stunning. I think she she's sexier than all hell. I think she has what it takes to make that character believable in the way that we're supposed to believe it. But the way it was presented uh, or edited down, it just kind of fell flat. I do like Robert Mitchum in this a lot. He's great. Is he my my favorite? I don't know uh, of all the actors that played Marlowe. However, physically, from reading the books, he fits the character as he was described in my mind. Like I, That's the Marlowe I, I always envisioned. Was the way, cause, cause Marlowe is described as tall. He's like six foot one. Uh, whereas in the movies, they've had short actors playing mostly, right? I haven't seen the, the Basher Doubloon, that one I, with, with, with some actor I've never heard of before. I think his name's George Montgomery. Yeah. Um, although, um, I love the Marlowe TV series starring Powers Booth. Yeah, that was good. Can we step back a bit and talk about Claire Trevor and how good she was in this? Cause, uh, what I was looking at her career as a part of, preparing for this and it's one of the things that pisses me off about classic hollywood and there aren't that many things that do but claire trevor played this femme fatale character really well she was sexy as all hell 20 years later she's playing edward g robinson's shrewish wife in two weeks in another town and a character that kind of is a horrible cliche for middle-aged women and then she goes on to the remake of pick up on south street the uh, the Cape Town Affair, playing the role that Thelma Ritter played in Pick Up on South Street. So as actors aged in 1940s to 1960s movies, they really got a short shrift and they were put into really nasty roles that don't give them a chance to show their experience as actors. Uh, it's a real tragedy of that particular period in Hollywood history, I think. Yeah, here we have Mitchum being rewarded for being an older actor and playing Marlowe. 30 years older that or 20 some years older than um, Bogart was and, and, and Powell was, you know, Marlowe was supposed to be 33 years old in the book. And here he is as a 60 year old man that nobody really bats an eye. You know, they, they refer to age and that's about it. You know, he'll, maybe that's why they cut out the love interest. Perhaps, I don't know, but yeah, Mitchum is rewarded and poor Claire Trevor ends up being, you know, cast in these horrible roles afterwards. Had Poodle Springs been published around that time and they opted to film that, he would have been perfect. Absolutely perfect for that. I have yet to see The Big Sleep, uh, the adaptation that he was in. Um, so I'm very curious to see how Mitchum's The Big Sleep compares to the uh, Bogart The Big Sleep because I've seen that one so many times. I'm going to rewatch it for our discussion, but I saw it a long time ago and I remember thinking it was okay. I remember thinking it was, you know, very seventies because it's, it's not a period piece. It's modern day. Speaking of that, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for that. Can I help you, sir? Oh yeah. I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track, like the Maldives Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. 
But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly... I like that. More. That's even better. That's right. As we already said, we'll be back next week with a discussion of The Big Sleep, where I'll be joined again by Terry and Eric. Now, folks may tune in just for one of these or all three. So I'm going to ask you guys at the end of each one of these episodes what you're up to lately. And I was thinking it might be fun if you told the truth on this one and fabricated some wild stories on the next two, just to see if people are paying attention. So with that in mind, Eric, what have you been up to lately? Uh, I just been busy working, man. Been doing a lot of freelance, uh, and I just took on a part-time job and I'm trying just to give myself breathing room to focus on my like creative projects. So hopefully there's something I'm working on. Hopefully, uh, I'll get that done soon and it'll be an announcement. Maybe. How about yourself, Terry? What have you been up to? I've been teaching myself how to make films on YouTube. Um, I've been doing a little bit of vlog and things like that. I'm teaching myself editing, which makes me appreciate movies even more. I'm looking at things like depth of focus more in movies and um, time ramping and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So I'm on a beautiful learning curve there on, first off, how to hold the camera steady, which is a big ask for me. But also, I'm learning about film production on a very small scale because it's just me and a laptop. But it's feeding into my love of film in that I understand the editing process, I understand um, angles and shots and what and depth of field and all those kind of things. And I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's a great joy for me. And it's kind of like I've been waiting all my life for the technology to catch up to my passion. And that's what I've been doing. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.